Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for joining us once again. And thank you for your patience as we appreciate this episode is a little bit late. Um, lovely seeing everybody that we saw at CrimeCon, though. That was lovely, wasn't it, Mark? It was fantastic. Yeah, we've been uh, too busy having fun and meeting you guys. So thank you to everybody that came up to say hi. Uh, it's kind of why we do this, isn't it? So it was lovely to actually meet you in person. It really was. It was such a good day. So if you've had any photos with us, do remember to tag us and yeah, maybe see you all next year at CrimeCon next summer instead. Before we get into this week's episode, which is an absolute departure for us, Bethan said she's gone rogue and she really has gone rogue. Before we head there, and it's it's going to be a long one as well, that's what she said, uh, let's take a moment <laughs> to thank our newest Patreon supporters. Bethan, you're going to do the honours and butcher those names. Well, hey, so a huge thank you to Hannah Wright, Jamie Waugh, Kate Saunders, Emily Wrigley, Kerry, Katie Harris, Stuart Day, Maddie, D. Avid, Jodie Smith, Karen Ferraro, Kate Saunders, oh, and Emily Wrigley. But I've already said their names, haven't I? Because you told me to only read the ones that were circled. That's embarrassing for you. Also, Samantha Watts and Sarah Journeau. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you to each and every one of you and all of our existing supporters as well. If you want to join these guys and have your name butchered too, all you need to do is head over <laughs> to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. So as Mark mentioned before, this week is a bit of a departure from our usual style, but I've really enjoyed writing this up and I hope you guys will enjoy listening. Our listener Tattoo Rachel over on Instagram has asked whether we'd be willing to look at a case that isn't necessarily a crime. And because this is a topic that I love and I could talk about all day long, I couldn't resist. So she asked us if we could look at the case of how the Titanic sank and who was to blame. And I'm very excited about this. Are you excited, Mark? I am. I am really genuinely excited because I'm fascinated by the Titanic, all aspects of it. And of course, it's sinking. And I was really tempted because I knew that you were going to do this because we were chatting about it at CrimeCon. Um, I knew you were going to do it. And I, I meant to watch the film, the 1997 film uh, in anticipation, but I didn't get around to it. And I'm kind of pleased because I want to see your take on it. So yeah, super excited to hear um, what you've got to say about it and whether it is a crime or not because you did kind of hint at that on the weekend that maybe there was a crime somewhere some people yeah at the time obviously there were investigations to find out if there was a crime and I've I feel like you're being a lot nicer to me with this than I ever was when you would go abroad and I'd be like it's not UK come <laughs> I on remember and you'd be that. like trying to find a tenuous link like she had an auntie twice removed that was British <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because I, I know you'll do a fantastic job of it. And I think a lot of our listeners will be really interested to hear this too, because it is a it is a departure for us. And I mean, we are going to look in detail at what led to over 1500 people dying, a tragedy that not only shocked the nation then, but continues to fascinate us over 100 years later. It's going to be one of those episodes where we see many small or not so small mistakes leading to that main catastrophe. And we have had cases like that before where perhaps nothing's actually ever come about at the end, but there were mistakes made potentially by people or, or things happened. So I think it will fit in just about. So welcome to Seeing Red, a slightly historical podcast. And of course, as is normal with any major catastrophe, the disaster is also the subject of many conspiracy theories, which you all know that I love. So I thought I'll bring a couple of those to the table too. Okay, let's get cracking. So first of all, we're going to look at the concept of cruise ships and the sort of dawn of sailing as a pastime for the rich and famous. This is a topic we discussed reasonably recently when we looked at some cases of people going missing at sea and this idea of this beginning of celebrity culture is a topic I really enjoy researching and I was thinking of you as I was researching some of these names, the big names on the ship. There were some really famous people, weren't there, from business and I don't know if from show business back then, but yeah, there were big names that were lost in um, in that voyage. So yeah, I love all of that. And this is when wealth was really presenting itself, wasn't it, across the world? There was yeah. the Industrial Revolution, so... People had serious money. The first proper millionaires were being created. 
That's it, exactly. So large ocean liners had become really popular in the early 1900s when this transatlantic passenger trade was really highly profitable and it was very, very competitive. The ship lines would fight to transport the wealthy travellers and the immigrants. Two of the biggest names in the industry at this time were White Star and Cunard. So the ocean liner itself of the Titanic with White Star had three distinct ticket options. So that was first class, second class and third class. And I am going to go into this before we even start looking at it properly because I found this so interesting. First class was wealthy and prominent individuals such as the aristocracy, celebrities, politicians and businessmen. And those passengers had access to all the facilities on board. There were veranda cafes, a smoking room, a restaurant, a dining saloon, a reading and writing room. Their passengers could play deck games like shuffleboard. They could use the gym, the squash courts and a swimming pool on board. They could play chess or backgammon on the deck. They could bring loads of luggage with them. Some of them had their entourage of maids, their butler. Some of them brought their dog. Some of them even brought their car. And the Titanic had 39 private suites located at the top of the ship. So somebody who could afford this would have two large bedrooms, two walk-in wardrobes and a bathroom and a living room for guests to entertain their guests. There were two dressing rooms and a private deck. And the cheapest of the first class fares cost around £23. So that's £2,795 apparently today. Biggest, sort of most luxurious suites cost up to £870. So that's 105000 today, which I just think is so glamorous, isn't it, for a trip across the sea? I, I was going to say, this isn't a, a kind of month-long cruise. This is a few days sailing across the Atlantic to get to New York. So that's a massive amount of money. I was also going to say that's so cute that people brought their dogs on, on board as well, but... Actually, I wish they hadn't because I doubt any of those animals were saved. Yeah, I'm not. I'm going to be honest with you. It's not something I've looked into. So hopefully, one of our well, hopefully one of our listeners can get in touch with a nice, happy story about a dog that survived. That would be good. If none did, please don't tell us. Basically, <laughs> um, and the first class passengers dined in style because the dining room was the largest ever seen on a ship. They had a live orchestra playing background music. They were treated to this extraordinary dining experience at every single meal. So they would have real delicacies. They'd have foie gras, they'd have jelly and all sorts of things. And their dinners would consist of up to 13 courses. Each course had a different accompanying wine and each dinner would last four or five hours. It's crazy, isn't it, really, when you think, like you said, they're just going across to New York. Yeah, but I suppose it was a big deal at that time. It's a big deal now. Yeah. Yeah. And because the first and second class dining saloons shared a galley, it's quite likely that some of the second class guests were offered, well, the second class guests in general were offered some of the same dishes as those first class passengers, but not all of them. And they wouldn't have had all the fancy additions and the wine pairings, but they might have had some of the same courses, which is quite cool. And the Titanic was actually nicknamed the Millionaire Special because it was captained by Edward J. Smith, known as the Millionaire's Captain. He was really popular with wealthy passengers. And on board the Titanic's maiden voyage were a number of prominent people. Um, So we had American businessman Benjamin Guggenheim, British journalist William Thomas Stead, Macy's department store co-owner Isidore Strauss and his wife Ida, And there were also loads of other fancy names. So Lucy Noel, Martha Leslie, the Countess of Rhodes, Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon, his wife, Lady Lucy Duff Gordon, and John Jacob Astor IV. So very fancy names for some very fancy people. William Thomas Stead was a British newspaper editor. Um, He was the pioneer of investigative journalism, described as the most famous journalist in the British Empire. And what I quite liked with him, I was looking into him, he was known for reporting on child welfare and social legislation and was quite key in reformation of England's criminal codes, published loads of highly influential campaigns. One of the campaigns that he had written was in support of a bill that raised the age of consent from 13 to 16. So I feel like he did a lot of really decent work, that guy. And then Benjamin Guggenheim, I feel like most of us would know the name. So he was the father of Peggy Guggenheim, a patron of modern art. And we've probably all heard of the Guggenheim Gallery. He was a wealthy businessman. Now, Sir Cosmo and Lady Lucy Duff Gordon were basically this big celebrity couple of the time. 
Cosmo Duff Gordon was from a Scottish aristocratic family and he was a sportsman. He was most noted as a fencer. He represented Great Britain at the 1906 Intercalated Games and won that silver. And Cosmo served on the organising committee at the 1908 Summer Olympics, was a keen shooter. He did duelling competitions with pistols and all sorts of things. And in 1900, he married the celebrated London fashion designer, Madame Lucille, Lucy. And this was actually quite risque because Lucy was a divorcee whose sister was a notorious romance novelist. How scandalous is that? (laughs) So she was quite innovative as well in her own area. So both of them were really big in what they did. She'd started up the Mannequin Parade, which was the precursor to the modern fashion show. She trained the first professional models and her clothing included you're going to gasp, Mark, slit skirts, low necklines, less restrictive corsets and alluring lingerie. Sounds Um, risque. Yeah, so they sound like kind of like the Kim and Kanye of their era, like they'd go to all the fashion shows and sports events and dancing and drinking at restaurants and clubs. And then there was the Titanic second class, so that was made up of middle class families, tourists, travelling professionals. A general ticket price was about £13, so... £1,579. That second class was really smart and it was actually nicer than it would have been on other liners. Second class on the Titanic was similar to the standard of first class on the other less expensive, more, you know, the smaller liners. And it was quite fun that these second class passengers could actually go on the Titanic because they got a better, a better deal really and a better experience. Well, yeah, I mean, it even ended with the ship sinking, so it was brilliant for them. Oh, Mark, you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm going to struggle a little bit with this episode because, and don't don't hate me, but when the victims are over 100, when this happened over 100 years ago, I find it really hard to relate to it, so... Do you know um, what? I completely understand. It feels, you feel a lot more detached, don't you? Because it happened yeah. so long ago. It's not that I would deliberately make jokes around it, but... Yeah, you're right. You are more detached because it was so long ago. And that's why I did try and kind of really find something out about some of the celebrities because I feel like that's the normal people. Absolutely. And there's been lots of lovely stories written about the normal people and there's some wonderful anecdotes and that sort of thing. But I feel like that's the way to draw people if you're trying to do something a bit more sensational, isn't it? It's the celebrity side. Um, But even then, yeah, the celebrities are so different to our celebrities now. So the second class accommodation had cabins with bunk beds and each cabin had two or four beds. Um, While these cabins were quite fancy for second class, they still had to share a communal bathroom, which I thought was an interesting one. But I know when we talked about cruising at the beginning of cruise ships, that was quite normal to share a communal bathroom. It It wasn't normal to have your own. But the second class customers still had comfort and leisure they had a spacious outdoor promenade they had a smoking room of their own a library and a dining room where a pianist would play for them so they didn't get an orchestra but they got a piano so that's nice and the titanic musicians who played for the first class guest actually got to travel in second class they weren't classed as crew members because they were actually employed through a third party agency by white star so i thought that was quite nice for them they got a bit of luxury really they were probably the most looked after, other than the captain and some of the really senior crew. Yeah, they'd have been one, some of the most looked after crew on that mm. ship. And then third class was much more basic, very few luxuries, but passengers still enjoyed quite a high level of luxury compared with other liners of the day. So they paid about £7 or £850 today for their tickets. And They were known as the steerage passengers because they travelled in the ship's steerage section. So the cabin slept up to 10 people, located kind of in that noisy bottom part of the ship, close to the engines. Single men and women were split up at the front and back, families in the middle. There were two baths for everyone in third class. But they did enjoy cabins that had bedding, electricity, heat and running water, which was really novel compared with what they would expect on other ships. This would have been us, two, two basic bitches travelling in third. Yeah, but this is the thing, like, even though they're third class and the facilities in general are to attract the really wealthy, even third class got some really good 
things. They had a menu which had actual food on because in general, on other ships, third class passengers had to bring their own food for the whole journey and just bring it all and hope that it didn't go rotten. Whereas on the Titanic, they actually got food cooked for them. So basically, they wanted, White Star really wanted people to write to their families and say, look, you should use this if you're thinking about traveling. If you're thinking about emigrating, use this use, use this line. So most of the passengers in first and second class were returning home from the US from holidays and vacations. And then the third class passengers were emigrating. Most of them planned to carry on. Um, sorry, the first and second class passengers were returning home to the US on their vacations. But the third class passengers were traveling to New York to start a new life so they had a really diverse group there were loads of nationalities and ethnic groups majority British and Irish immigrants but other passengers were from Scandinavia Eastern Europe Lebanon Syria and even Hong Kong so it's quite a big mix so even though they obviously wanted to embrace all the different classes and make sure this was still a great opportunity for the third class there was still this real distinction. So the third class areas of the ship had grills and like a kind of grated gate thing to prevent the third class passengers from wandering into areas they're not permitted to enter. During the sinking of the Titanic, actually, many of the stewards either forgot or didn't have time to unlock the grills like they were meant to in an emergency. So that did mean that quite a lot of third class passengers became trapped below the deck. And I thought that was really I didn't know that's what they were for because I I remember in the film that yeah, the, they get trapped. Jack and Rose get trapped because of these gates. I didn't know they were for that reason. Yeah, so it was just not necessarily to to be like a trap or anything like, but just to warn people. You know, you're going, you can't go past this. It wasn't meant to be horrific, but actually, yeah, ultimately, it ended up being quite horrific. Back to White Star and Cunard. So the two passenger liners were garnering much attention for their expected speed. Um, in fact, later both lines would set speed records for crossing the Atlantic. It was this real race between the two companies to get ships built and out onto the seas. Looking to beat his rival, the White Star chairman, J. Bruce Ismay, met with William Pirry, who controlled the Belfast shipping firm, um, shipbuilding firm Harland and Wolfe. So they constructed most of White Star's vessels and the pair hatched this plan to build a class of large liners that would be known not only for their comfort and their speed, but not just the speed. It wasn't going to just be these fast, fast ships. They wanted to do everything. And I just feel like you could imagine that meeting. They're probably smoking pipes or something, wouldn't they, over a big dark wood desk and paper everywhere. It just, I can just imagine it. It would have been in some lawyer's office in Mayfair or something, proper old school. Yeah. So, Eventually, they made their decision. They were going to construct three vessels, the Olympic, the Titanic and the Britannic. The Olympic and the Titanic were then built side by side from early 1909 onwards in a specially constructed gantry that could accommodate this huge size. And the sister ships were largely designed by Thomas Andrews of Harland and Wolfe. And they, the Titanic featured these incredible elements. There was this massive first-class dining room. It had four lifts in the ship, a swimming pool. Um, and like I said, that second-class accommodation was actually comparable to first-class features on most other ships. It amazes me to this day, cruise ships, how big they are. They have so much on them. And in 1909, this was revolutionary. It was incredible to customers that the third-class offerings were comfortable too. Um, The ship boasted state-of-the-art technology, they had a sophisticated electrical control panel and an advanced wireless communication system that could transmit Morse code, which obviously is nothing now, but it, it really was revolutionary at the time. So the Titanic was absolutely huge for its era and as it prepared to embark on its maiden voyage, the Titanic was one of the largest and most opulent ships in the whole world. So it was about 269 metres long and about 28 metres wide at its widest point. And when it stopped at Cherbourg in France, the dock was too small to accommodate to the Titanic, so passengers actually had to be ferried to and from the ship in tenders. But actually, today's cruise ships are even bigger. That being said, though, obviously it would have been pretty incredible for people in 1912 to look at this ship and to see it in the dock. 
And one of the Titanic's safety elements, the key safety element that a lot of people talk about and we're going to talk about today, is the 16 compartments with doors which could be closed from the bridge so water could be contained in the event that the hull was breached. Although these were presumed to be watertight, these bulkheads were not actually capped at the top and the ship's builders claimed that four of the compartments could be flooded without endangering the liner's buoyancy. This feature, this safety feature, is what led to many to claim that the Titanic was unsinkable. That's a phrase I'm sure we've heard many, many times, and it's something that the papers really latched onto for headlines. It wasn't that it was unsinkable, but this would, it could be flooded in a certain way at a certain point without actually sinking straight away. And that probably, that probably was revolutionary to be able to, for the hull to be able to be breached, water to, to come in, and four of these compartments could be completely full, brimming with water, and that ship would continue to float and move. Yeah, but we will look at this in a lot more detail shortly. So, the official name, the Royal Mail Ship, RMS Titanic. I didn't know that that's what RMS meant, but there we go. The Royal Mail Ship Titanic was launched on May the 31st, 1911, and after that point, the machinery was loaded, interior work began. And after the Olympics maiden voyage in June 1911, there were some slight changes made to the Titanic's design. In April 1912, the Titanic went, underwent its sea trials and it was declared seaworthy. And on April the 10th, 1912, the Titanic set sail on its maiden voyage, a journey set to travel from Southampton in England to New York City. Even at the very beginning of the voyage, there were potential issues. So a fire had begun in the coal bunker in the boiler room number five. This fire was burning from the time that the ship left Southampton on April the 10th until the day before the sinking, um, which sounds really crazy, but actually fires in the coal bunkers were not abnormal. Quite often they'd occur on board steamships due to spontaneous combustion of the coal and the fires had to be extinguished with fire hoses, moving the coal on top to another bunker, removing the burning coal, feeding this into the furnace. According to the firemen on board, it wasn't until the ship had departed Southampton that they began to dig out the coal. But it shouldn't have been too much of an issue, this did happen. But again, we'll go back to this. On leaving Southampton, there was almost a collision because suction from the Titanic caused the docked New York to swing into this giant liner's path, because obviously it would cause such a huge wave. And they had to spend an hour manoeuvring the two ships to prevent an accident. It would have, it's just all these little things, isn't it? Just mad to think. Yeah, and you almost feel like, was the Grim Reaper stalking this ship? Was it meant to sink in some way, shape or form, whether it was a fire a collision with another liner or ultimately the iceberg. Something was going to get it. sound like the Final Destination movies. I love that kind of, not conspiracy is it, but I love that sort of way of thinking that things are just sort of preordained and you can try and avoid it happening, but ultimately the same thing, yeah, the same thing is going to happen. Mm, Intriguing. So after some stops in France and Ireland, all passengers that were meant to be collected had been collected and it was time for the Titanic to set sail for New York City on this main leg of the voyage. An estimated 100,000 people gathered at the dock in Belfast in Ireland to wave off the people on board. So approximately 1,300 passengers, 900 staff and crew. Um, And I can just picture this joyous celebration, everyone waving off the largest and the most luxurious cruise liner of its day. And even those third class passengers would have felt so fancy. We're going off on our voyage. It's just horrendous, isn't it? Because you know what's going to happen, but you can just imagine that feeling of celebration. And and just uh, from from the dock side, just looking at it, not as a passenger, but just as a spectator, it really would have been a, a, a an amazing view to behold, wouldn't it? To see the size of that ship like nothing that I've ever seen before, particularly mm-hmm. in even in Belfast where they, they were building ships. But yeah, particularly for people that may have been from more rural parts of Ireland that have perhaps travelled to Belfast to, to see it off, it would have been, yeah, unimaginable for them to be there seeing that yeah and like nothing they've ever encountered yeah so the ship sailed most people on board having a lovely time they were eating and drinking and dancing but the wireless radio operators had a job 
I mean, such a really long job. So basically, they had to relay both passenger messages and any reports from the other ships that were around. This pair were Jack and Harold, and they were so busy. On the evening of April the 14th, the Titanic began to approach an area known to have icebergs. So they prioritised passenger messages over iceberg warnings, I guess, because they had very rich and famous influential people barking orders at them. But most of the iceberg warnings were also passed along to the bridge too. At approximately 9.40pm, a nearby ship called the Masaba sent a warning of an ice field, but that message wasn't relayed to the Titanic's bridge. And at about 10.55pm, a nearby ship called the Californian sent word that it had actually had to stop because it was so surrounded by ice. Um, just didn't feel like it was safe to continue. So the radio operators working on the Titanic, like I said, they were so busy. They actually sent a message to the Californian telling them they were busy, can't take your messages, and even scolded the Californian for interrupting passenger messages. So the Californian just stopped communicating at this point. And because their warning didn't begin with the prefix MSG, which is Master's Service Gram, that, that's a prefix that would have required the captain to directly acknowledge receiving the message, the radio operators just didn't feel that it was... It, they just thought it was probably non-urgent. They didn't pass this along. Is that the olden day equivalent of please TB, <laughs> please text back? PTB, PDB. PTB, which is yeah. what I do please to you back. sometimes. Please text, please text back. back, I need an PD answer sometimes now. when it's yeah. urgent even though I reply quite quickly anyway, but anywho. Um, also very busy that night were two lookouts, Frederick and Reginald. They were stationed in the crow's nest of the Titanic and their task was to look out for icebergs or anything really that would be an issue. Their job was really difficult because the ocean was unusually calm that night. There was very little water breaking at the base of any icebergs, so they were really hard to spot. And the crow's nest's binoculars were missing. So the second officer, David, had the key to binoculars storage box and he was actually transferred off the ship before it set sail across the Atlantic. Forgot he had the key, so didn't hand it over. So they didn't actually have any binoculars. They were just looking at the dark ocean from up in the crow's nest. So when they reached the area known to have the icebergs, the captain... Edward J. Smith slightly altered the ship's course to head further south, but he maintained the ship speed of some 22 knots. And there's been rumours that he was attempting some sort of speed record. That's one of the conspiracy theories, but that's unsubstantiated. The speed of the ship is one of the elements about how the disaster possibly could have been avoided. So 22 knots or about 25 miles per hour is what many historians believe was a little bit too fast given the fact that they knew that there were icebergs in this area. So just another thing to add to our list of things that contributed to this. And when crossing the Atlantic, it's not uncommon for a ship to want to sail as fast as they can when the weather's good. Fog's really common on the Atlantic. So if a ship's able to make up time early in the journey and when there's no fog, it has some leeway should it encounter bad weather and have to slow down later on. Um, and in a 2004 paper, an engineer called Robert Eisenhigh speculated that efforts to control the fire in the coal bunker might have also explained why the Titanic was sailing at full speed. They've got a lot going on and they just want to get there as quick as they can. Bruce Ismay, the managing director of the White Star Line, was actually aboard the Titanic. So as we mentioned earlier, competition for Atlantic passengers was fierce. The White Star Line wanted to show they could make this six-day crossing. And to meet the schedule, the Titanic couldn't afford to slow down. So some people believe that Ismay might have been putting pressure on Captain Smith to maintain the speed of the ship. It was the ship's maiden voyage. There'd be so much bad publicity if they arrived in New York late. And Smith would have been worried about that, so maybe he chose not to slow down for these reasons as well. Some people have also made a point about how this was Captain Smith's final trip before he retired. So all he had to do was this final ship, final ships sailing. So he had to get there in record time. And he also was quoted as having said years before the Titanic's voyage, I cannot imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. So maybe he just genuinely believed that ships couldn't sink and there was no need to worry about the warnings. He had that confidence in the ship, but maybe too much confidence. At approximately 11.40pm on the 14th of April, about 400 nautical miles south of Newfoundland in Canada, an iceberg was sighted. The bridge was notified. And after spotting the iceberg, William Murdoch, who was the first officer on the Titanic, 
in charge of the engine and in charge of the bridge, he gave the order to stop the engines and make a hard left turn. Some historians suspect that if the order hadn't been given to stop the engines, the Titanic might have had enough engine power to swing round and out of the way of the iceberg. But when the engine stopped, this meant that the propellers stopped and the rudders didn't have water pushing over them. Um, maybe they might have been able to move it a little bit more out of the sh- out of harm's way or to minimise the damage. And I read a really interesting analogy about this moment where they're trying to turn the ship to avoid a head-on collision with this iceberg that they see but it's just too late and it said trying to avoid a head-on collision in a car is hard but the Titanic was 20,000 times heavier and it had the full momentum of all the weight driving it forwards and although the engines were immediately put into reverse all of that would have taken a massive distance so even though you're seeing the the iceberg up ahead even just turning off the engines you're still going to keep going forward and They just didn't have enough distance to alter the course and the Titanic sideswiped the iceberg. It's probably fair to assume that when the Titanic hit the iceberg, passengers would have felt a crash. I definitely would have assumed that there would have been a big crash, a big thud. But actually, some of the passengers didn't even notice at all. The the crash was more of a long scrape, not really a bump, reasonably noisy. But actually, the stopping of the ship or the the stopping of the engines was probably more noticeable to the passengers. So the ship's starboard side actually scraped along the iceberg. It damaged nearly 100 metres of the right-hand side of the hull above and below the waterline. At least five of the supposedly watertight compartments below the bow was ruptured and the collision's impact produced a series of thin gashes along the base of the ship, as well as brittle fracturing and separation of seams in the adjacent hull plates and that allowed water to flood in. But as we probably would expect in a lot of situations, the crew were telling guests there's nothing to worry about because they wanted to avoid panic. When the Titanic first hit the iceberg, actually many curious passengers opened the porthole windows to have a little look. On modern cruise ships, the porthole or the ocean view windows in cabins don't open, but back in 1912 they did. And some of those windows were then left open, which may well have encouraged the Titanic to sink faster because when the passenger decks dipped below the waterline, those windows being open allowed water to flood into the ship, which I just think is so sad because you wouldn't think, oh, I need to go shut my window when you're fleeing a ship. No, but you would probably think the design would be better and that those windows wouldn't be able to open. That was a risk, yeah. However, there there were lots of things that were done for passenger comfort and the aesthetics of the ship, weren't there? And safety almost came second in, in some elements of it. And also they didn't know until something went wrong. They didn't know that it It's that easy it to had. pick it apart. We've, yeah, we've got the hindsight. This was just a fascinating sort of interlude for a lot of people, messing around with the snowballs that they reached out and grabbed from the iceberg. It, it was interesting it was something different some people didn't they went back to bed they went back to sleep the staff were constantly being reassuring people they're not in any danger so up at the the bridge everybody who's actually in charge of the ship was having a real important meeting trying to work out what was going on and after assessing the damage the naval architect in charge of the plans Sir Thomas Andrews of Harland and Wolfe he basically determined that as the ship's forward compartments filled with water the bow would drop deeper into the ocean. So that could cause water from the ruptured compartments to spill into each succeeding compartment. He told the captain the ship was bound to sink. And so Captain Smith ordered Phillips to begin sending distress signals, one of which reached a nearby ship called the Carpathia at approximately 12.20am on April the 15th. And that ship immediately headed towards the Titanic. However, it was about 58 miles away when it received that signal It knew it would take more than three hours to reach the Titanic. Other ships also responded, including the Olympic, but all of them were too far away. And there was a vessel spotted nearby, but the Titanic couldn't contact it. And that's still a bit of a mystery as to what ship that was. Um, There's all sorts of conspiracy theories about whether or not that was like um, like an illegal hunting ship or something, but they couldn't contact it. And then the closest ship was the Californian, that one that had warned of the ice earlier, and this was nearer. But on this ship, the wireless radio had been turned off for the night. They'd gone to bed, so they didn't get any of the warnings. 
As attempts were made to contact nearby vessels, the lifeboats began to be launched with orders of women and children first. And although the Titanic's number of lifeboats exceeded that required by the British Board of Trade, its 20 boats could only carry 1,178 people, so nowhere near that 2,240, the total number of passengers and crew. And the problem was exacerbated by lifeboats being launched well below capacity because crewmen were worried that the Davids would not be able to support the weight of a fully loaded boat. Lifeboat number seven, for example, which was the first to leave the Titanic, only had 27 people in it, but it had space for 65. Now, a David is that kind of crane-like device that supports, raises and lowers the lifeboats. And actually, they had been tested in Belfast. They were more than able to fully support the weight of this loaded boat, but the crew weren't aware of that. And also, the Titanic had cancelled its scheduled lifeboat drill earlier in the day. That would have been so helpful for passengers to have known what to do and how to get into the lifeboats and to do that safely and that they needed to be filled. But they had been cancelled. In the end, only 705 people were rescued in lifeboats. That's 705 out of the 2,240 crew and passengers. As passengers waited to enter the lifeboats, they were entertained by the Titanic's musicians who initially played in the first class lounge and eventually moved to the ship's deck. Sources differ on how long they performed for, some reporting that it was really up until the ship was sinking. By 1am, water was seen at the base of the Grand Staircase on Deck E. Now, looking at a side-on view of the ship, this is about halfway up the main boat bit if you're looking at a picture of a ship. It's kind of my best way of describing it. So it's, it's getting, you know, halfway through the ship now. Amid the growing panic, several male passengers tried to board lifeboat number 14 and that caused the fifth officer, Harold Lowe, to fire his gun three times and it was becoming real panic. It was really chaotic. And around this time, Captain Phillips' distress calls reflected a growing desperation and one noted that the ship cannot last much longer. So the bow continued to sink and the stern then began to rise out of the water. So that put really incredible strain on the midsection of the ship. And at about 2am, the stern's propellers were clearly visible above the water. And the, it was only the lifeboats that remained on the ship. There was only three of them and they were collapsible boats. Captain Smith released the crew and said it's every man for himself. He was reportedly last seen in the bridge and his body was never found. And he, um, as the captain, sort of was like, you guys go, I go down with my ship. I do wonder if there's an element of suicide involved in that from him as well because of the shame that he's the captain of, because, of this ship yeah hundreds of people are going to die it, he is it's going to be at his hands ultimately so i, I wonder if he just there's a the, lot of yeah. pride for a man of his position especially yeah. at this time in the in society as well there's a lot going yeah. on for him at approximately 2.18am, the lights on the Titanic went out and it then broke in two with the bow going underwater. Reports later speculated that it took about six minutes for that section, travelling at approximately 30 miles an hour, to reach the ocean bottom, which I hate because I hate the idea of how vast and how deep the ocean is. It freaks me out. I think I hate it more than fire. What would that have been? Sort of seven, eight miles, something like that, probably? Five, six, seven, yeah? Oh yeah, you do the maths. I don't know. I can't. I can't work it out. But five miles, I want to say, but that's a lot, isn't it? That's incredibly deep. And the stern momentarily settled back in the water before it rose again and then began its final plunge. At about two twenty a.m., the ship foundered and the stern then completely disappeared beneath the waves. And water pressure allegedly caused that section, which still had some air inside, to implode as it sank. And I think most of us have seen the film Titanic or images from the film and expect that there was this dramatic 45 degree angle of the ship sticking up and then dropping down. Roger Long, a naval architect hired to later analyse the wreckage, has instead stated that the evidence shows it wasn't like this. Instead, the ship snapped in half at a more shallow angle. If the ship had been raised out of the water at a 45 degree angle, as per the film, once the stern tore off, nothing would have stopped it. All the hull pieces would have torn in two. And it, it might seem a bit trivial to mention this. It's just a film. And it, it did sink anyway. But this is quite key as to how a lot of people on board didn't realise the severity of the situation. So in Roger Long's scenario, the ship may have tilted over only slightly as the bow 
that's the bow, I keep saying bow, it's the bow filled with water. It would have given those on board a false sense of security, thinking rushing into lifeboats wasn't worth worrying about, they could just wait. As the bow filled with enough water, Long says, the ship would split in two and it sank within minutes at this point. And survivor testimony seems to confirm this. So the chief baker on the ship, Charlie Jocelyn, said that he had been standing near the stern when the ship went under and there was none of the signs of this high angle break. There was no suction, there was no big splash, no roller coaster ride. He swam away from the ship and didn't even get his hair wet. There was no massive waves or anything. One survivor reported slipping into the water, turning round and discovering that the ship had disappeared. And Long, so um, the guy who has done his actual investigations, the naval architect, said he was in the water 50 feet from the ship. He heard a schlup and it was gone. That's not what a person would remember if 25,000 tonnes of steel fell. And apparently technical advisors to the movie Titanic say that Cameron, um, who didn't want to kind of make a comment about this might have been aware of it but it basically wouldn't have made such a good film um which I totally agree with I think that sinking is a real effect and it it really gets to you but the fact that it actually was about 11 degrees rather than 45 degrees does really prove why people just still right to the very end didn't quite grasp how serious this was it does sound like it could have been quite a gentle sinking at that point yeah. I suppose James Cameron, the director you've just, just mentioned, he, he's got a film to make and the budget was massive on that film and it needs to recoup the money and it needs that dramatic moment, doesn't it? So it can't be yeah. an anticlimax. We've built up the nearly the whole way through the film. We've built up to this point and a schlup ain't going to cut it no. with getting bums on seats and box office take. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an element of dramatic license from him. So hundreds of passengers and crew went into the icy water and fearful of being swamped, those in the lifeboats delayed returning to pick up survivors, which meant that by the time they did row back, almost all of the people in the ice cold water had died from exposure. And in the end, more than 1500 people died that night. Aside from the crew, which had about 700 fatalities, the third class suffered the greatest loss. Of the 710 third class passengers, only about 174 survived. There were claims that passengers in steerage were prevented from boarding the boats. However, this was largely dispelled. Given Captain Smith's failure to sound a general alarm, it's reasonable to appreciate that most of the third-class passengers didn't realise that the situation was so dire until too late. Even once they did try and leave, they just didn't know their way around the ship and they had been kept in the one section the whole time like we said before, some of those gates had been kept locked, so it would have been very tricky for them to get out and up. The Carpathia arrived in the area at approximately 3.30am, so more than an hour after the Titanic sank. And over the next several hours, the Carpathia picked up all the survivors from the water. At approximately 8.30am, the California arrived, and they'd heard the news three hours earlier and set off. Shortly before 9am, the Carpathia headed for New York City, where it arrived to massive crowds on April the 18th. So of course, there were investigations into the sinking. There was one led by a senator in the USA and one following this investigation led by the British. The US investigation lasted from April the 19th to May the 25th, 1912, included interviews with more than 80 people, and passengers testified to the general confusion on the ship, the fact that there was no warning sounded, People stated that the scheduled lifeboat drill had never been held, and because of this, the lowering of the boats was often haphazard. Many of the crew members who were operating the lifeboats hadn't actually completed this before, so the lowering of the lifeboats was dangerous, less than efficient, and many passengers had to jump from the Titanic into the lifeboats. Within this as well, there was testimony from the crew of the Californian who claimed that their ship was about 20 miles from the Titanic. Crew members said they'd seen a ship, but it was too small to be the Titanic, and that this ship that they'd seen was moving. It was only after seeing rockets in the distance that the crew informed the captain, Stanley Lord, who'd gone to bed for the night, and instead of ordering the ship's wireless operator to turn on the radio, he instead told the men to continue to use the Morse lamp. There was loads said back and forth about this ship, and in particular Captain Lord. The US investigation really kind of slated the Californian and Lord, saying it must have been closer than they said, it could have done more to help. But from the evidence that we now have, it is fair to say that whilst Captain Lord could have responded in a more timely manner, 
and the true location of the Californian will never be conclusively known because it's not like nowadays where you'd have your GPS on. From the evidence of the crew, it was likely about 20 miles away. It wouldn't have reached the Titanic before it sank anyway. But there was so much at the time, people absolutely slated him. I, I think I remember that. And I, I don't know if you come on to it, but am I right in thinking that he took his own life as a result of this as well? I'm not sure on that. I'm going to be honest with you. It wouldn't shock me, though, however, if that was the case, because that would be absolutely horrific. But he was absolutely hounded. I, I remember that part of this story that, yeah, the papers went to town on him. He was a real scapegoat for this. And I'm pretty sure he he, beca- he, he was a ruined man. And I'm pretty sure he, he took his own life. I may be wrong, but I think that was possibly the end for him. Yeah. So in the end with the investigation, the US investigation faulted the British Board of Trade and said, to whose laxity of regulation and the hasty inspection, the world is largely indebted for this awful fatality i.e. mostly the insufficient lifeboat requirements and those associated issues, and this was the British Board of Trade's fault. Now, the presiding judge of the British Inquiry was Sir John Charles Bingham, Lord Mersey, and it was a bit awkward because it was led by the British Board of Trade, who the Americans said were at fault, so kind of investigating this, and so far they were who everyone thought was at fault. That's a shit show, and it sounds like a lot of the inquiries that take place even a hundred years later in this country, and I'm sure other countries too, a lot of the inquiries are just not really robust enough, are they, to get to the truth? We see that so much. No, exactly. There's a lot of talk and not much actual fact-finding or any changes often really brought about. I mean, there were changes off the back of this, but... It often feels like too little, too late. You can't go back and change things, even if an investigation is really thorough, but but it, it is frustrating, isn't it? So very little new evidence was discovered during the British 28 Days of Testimony, and the final report stated that the loss of the said ship was due to collision with an iceberg brought about by the excessive speed at which the ship was being navigated. However, Mercy also stated that he was not able to blame Captain Smith. He was only doing that which other skilled men would have done in the same position. Um, The American inquiry had also concluded that Captain Smith should have slowed the speed of the boat given the icy weather conditions. But the British inquiry did say that actually maintaining speed in icy weather conditions was common practice. So whilst it perhaps wasn't the right thing to be doing, he wasn't the first to do it. And he wasn't the only captain who would do this. The British investigators also slated the Californian loads and said that the liner was 5 to 10 nautical miles from the Titanic and even said she might have saved many, if not all, of the lives that were lost, which I think is a lot to put on someone. And both inquiries were saying that the person most at fault was Captain Stanley Lord of the Californian. The inquiries both stated that if Lord had gone to the Titanic's assistance when the first rocket was seen, everyone would have been saved, which I just think is so ridiculously awful to put on one person and the blame for the incident in general in the media and across the board really fell on captain smith condemned for the speed and obviously he died so he wasn't able to even come out and speak about it or anything like that so both the u.s and the british investigations proposed various safety recommendations and in 1913 the first international conference for safety of life at sea was called in London. The conference drew up rules requiring that every ship have lifeboat space for each person embarked, lifeboat drills be held for each voyage, and, because the Californian had not heard the distress signals of the Titanic, that ships must maintain a 24-hour radio watch. The International Ice Patrol was established to warn ships of icebergs in the North Atlantic shipping lanes and to break up ice. So there were some really big things that came off the back of what happened. Um, I just double checked Captain Stanley Lord so the captain of the Californian didn't die by suicide which is obviously very good to hear um, but he, yeah his reputation was absolutely ruined never really talked about yeah. what happened lived until the age of 84 died in the 90s uh, so a long time after this this incident but oh, I'm yeah so lived, glad that lived he a lot of his life by suicide with, though I'm so pleased but an awful lot of shame heaped upon him so incredibly sad Yeah, really sad. So I promised some conspiracy theories, didn't I? Of course, I'm going to go into some of these. I love a conspiracy theory. 
So the first is that there was a mummy on board the Titanic. And we all know that moving Egyptian mummies from their final resting places or disturbing them means they curse us, don't we? That's just a fact. So the story goes that when an Egyptian princess named Amun-Ra died 3,500 years ago, she was laid in an ornate wooden coffin and buried deep in a vault at Luxor on the banks of the Nile. In the late 1890s, four rich young Englishmen visiting the excavations were invited to buy this exquisitely fashioned mummy case containing the remains of Princess of Amun-Ra. One man paid several thousand pounds and had the coffin taken to his hotel. A few hours later, he was seen walking out towards the desert and he never returned. The next day, one of the remaining three men was accidentally shot and his arm was so severely wounded that it had to be amputated. The third man found on his return home that the bank holding his entire savings had failed and the fourth man suffered a severe illness, lost his job, and was reduced to begging in the street. The mummy and its coffin reached England, causing other misfortunes along the way, and here it was bought by a London businessman. After three of his family members had been injured in a road accident and his house was damaged by fire, he donated the mummy and the sort of coffin and everything to the British Museum. Apparently, once the princess was installed in the Egyptian room at the British Museum, trouble continued. There were spooky goings on. Watchmen died. When the mummy was sold to an American, it was to be shipped to New York aboard the Titanic. Spooky, isn't it? But none of it's true. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you can't, it's so old, isn't it? Anyone could say anything. It's you can't prove isn't this. it? See? Yeah. There is this unlucky mummy that people talk of at the British Museum, but it has no name. It only has a number, so it's not necessarily Princess of Amun-Ra. It's not even a mummy at all. It's the lid of an inner coffin. Nothing spooky actually happens there, and although the mummy was reported to be aboard the Titanic, it hasn't actually ever left the British Museum since it was delivered there in 1889. I would have loved it if that was true, but yeah, it's not true. Who, make, who makes this kind of shit up? I mean, it's a fun one, but it's not true. Another conspiracy theory, which actually has a bit more to it, because it's not as easily disproved. Um, Another one I don't really believe, but another conspiracy. This one came about mostly from a book. So a guy called Robin Gardner wrote a book entitled Titanic, The Ship That Never Sank, with a question mark. And the book claims that the Titanic was actually the Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic. The book goes through several events and coincidences that occurred in the months, the days and the hours leading up to the sinking of the Titanic and basically stated this was all part of an insurance scam by its owners. So on September the 20th, 1911, on the fifth voyage of the Olympic, it ran into serious trouble, crashed into a passing military vessel, the Hawk, and the Olympic was badly damaged. Conspiracy theorists claim that it was now an economic disaster. The lawsuit surrounding the accident stated that White Star were at fault, that meant repairs weren't covered by insurance, and the ship was drawing no money while it was sat in the docks. So, the conspiracy theory goes, the company made a switch. The damaged older ship would be repurposed to be the Titanic. The company could have an accident from which White Star Line could collect an insurance payment, and that would befit a brand new ship. All the while, the ship originally built as the Titanic would have lived on and they could have used it again. It's a theory to this day that people still talk about, even though historians have pretty much proven that it isn't true. So the two ships had significant interior architectural and design differences. Switching them secretly in a week would have been basically impossible from a practical standpoint. And the switch would also not be economically worthwhile because the ship's owners could have just damaged the ship while docked. They could have set fire to it in the dock and collected the insurance money from that accident. So it's there's some logic there. It's plausible. This kind of stuff, I'm sure, does happen. But yeah, I think, like you say, that these are two massive ships. You, you're not going to be able to kind of swap one for the other and undertake masses of interior redesign to fit it out as as its sister ship. It's yeah, it's not possible, is it? Yeah, and I don't believe the theory, but like you said, it's 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 got some it's got some weight behind it. Some yeah. of the reasons people do believe it is the number of portholes is apparently different and certain rooms inside the titanic were changed and obviously it's at the bottom of the ocean so people have dived down and can describe what they can or can't see down there and people have said well that's not how it is in the plans 
Um, but one key piece of evidence against this conspiracy theory is the construction of the ships. So each ship has a distinct construction identification number known as a yard number, and that appears on many of the parts, including the wood panelling. It's well documented that the Olympics yard number was 400, Titanic's was 401, and loads of artefacts bearing the number 401 have been raised from the Titanic. Auctions for items from the Olympic, which was retired in 1935, featured the number 400. And also, as experts say, and I think we'd all agree as well, the sheer number of people it would have taken to stay quiet about a switch of the Olympic and Titanic. It it just isn't plausible. The most likely place for the switch to occur would have been that very easily viewable Harland and Wolfe shipyard in Belfast. The ships were built there. People could go and look down the hill and look at them. It's open air. People who lived in the Belfast area would have seen them swap the ships. <laughs> it's just of nonsense, course they would. Isn't it? Yeah, it is nonsense. But like you say, there is you almost it's kind of plausible. Had yeah, had it been something yeah. on a smaller scale, it would have potentially made more sense. But yeah, it's an absolute no. That is, mm. and the whole th- conspiracy theory kind of looks at the insurance benefits but that doesn't build up because the actual insurance wouldn't have paid out any more than two-thirds of the ship's worth so it actually wouldn't have even been worth it for insurance money anyway to do that other conspiracy theorists claim a more nefarious reason for the sinking so jp morgan was behind the switch eager to use an inferior ship to drown his enemies aboard So according to this theory, millionaire banker JP Morgan planned the Titanic disaster to kill off his rival millionaires Jacob Astor, Isidore Strauss and Benjamin Guggenheim. They all perished aboard. And the theory kind of hinges on the fact that JP Morgan had originally planned to sail on the Titanic but changed his mind shortly before it took off. But really, how did he either switch two ships without anybody noticing and put a dodgy ship in the ocean for people to sail on? Or how did he cause the ship to hit an iceberg in a manner that meant over 1,500 people died? Um, That just seems very far-fetched. And also JP Morgan apparently wanted to kill these three men because they opposed the creation of the Federal Reserve. But actually, Astor and Guggenheim never publicly had a stance on this and Strauss actually supported it. So that's quite unlikely. It's an interesting theory. It it would have made for... A great story, but it's unfortunately, yeah, it just can't be true. Too many variables to exactly to so pull many something variables. off. Yeah, not going to happen. It's not like Princess Diana driving through that tunnel. You know that, which potentially could be a, a future episode for us. But that that is kind of really self-contained and much easier to stage something. Yeah, uh, this is in not... a tunnel. Whereas this, yeah, you're out in the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. It's vast. There's lots of people involved. There's just no way he could have engineered that happening. And and ultimately, there's no motive anyway because they hadn't taken a position against that bill, so it yeah. would have been pointless. Yeah. So there's loads of theories about the ship sinking. I'd love to hear our listeners' theories and we'll pop a Facebook discussion post up and any that you want to share that you want to go into more detail about. Actually, if you disagree with me on any of this, please do come and come and tell me why I'm wrong because I'd love that. And there's there's plenty of other, other theories going around as well. But I'm going to finish with what the experts now feel is the truth behind the actual sinking and this accident, but this kind of perfect storm of all these little elements that that really slot into place. So the high speed impact was the start of the disaster. So when the Titanic collided with the iceberg, the hull steel and the raw iron rivets failed due to brittle fracture. So the professionals who know what they're talking about published the following. For many commonly used structural materials, impact at extremely high speeds results in brittle fracture without any yielding or plastic deformation. This is a type of catastrophic failure in structural materials, the causes of which include low temperature, high impact loading and high sulphur content. So rather than yielding or bending and breaking, it's going to have a brittle fracture. And actually on the night of the Titanic disaster, all of those three factors that the professionals have talked about were present so the water temperature was below freezing the titanic was traveling at a high speed on impact and the hull steel did contain high levels of sulfur metal pieces of the ship that were later found were jagged and shattered and sharp today 
typical high quality ship steel is actually more ductile and it deforms rather than breaks but scientists discovered that the metal pieces from the titanic showed no evidence of bending or deformation they simply shattered it it was just going to fall apart the material used was not the only factor that kind of led to the sinking of the titanic so scientists now state that the design of the ship was actually not good enough to deem it unsinkable because those watertight compartments in the ship's lower section weren't actually watertight in any sense of the word so yes the lower section of the titanic was divided into 16 major watertight compartments they were only watertight horizontally the tops of the compartments were open and the walls extended only a few feet above the waterline so in order to contain water within those damaged compartments it was imperative that the walls of the watertight compartments were positioned across the width of the ship, maybe a few feet taller. The collision with the iceberg damaged the whole portion of the six of the 16 compartments and the compartments were sealed. But as the water filled them, the ship went forward from the weight of the water in the area and the compartments began to spill over into adjacent compartments, you know, this horizontal watertight nature. So basically everything was extensively flooded. Then the ship was pulled below the waterline. So that was a key safety feature that was really highly publicized and actually was not functional in the slightest and i feel like anybody even without any architectural or engineering sort of background could kind of look at it and sort of go that wouldn't necessarily work if this happens if the ship moves in this kind of way so i'm shocked that that got signed off basically and that they could sort of boast about that when actually again that just wasn't robust enough to prevent what happened happening and without those compartments the titanic would have remained horizontal because the incoming water would have spread out and eventually even in that case obviously the ship would have sunk but the titanic would have remained afloat for a few more hours before it capsized although this obviously isn't the reason the titanic sank without that design flaw it might have slowed down the sinking process and scientists maintain that this amount of time would have been sufficient for nearby ships to actually reach the Titanic and potentially all of the people on board could have been rescued. The fire in the boiler room that had been going for days warped some of the metal of the ship. So the ignition point of coal is around 400 degrees C. The temperature within the coal bunker would have been at least that high and the watertight bunkers were designed to keep water in one area should the ship have an accident but the weakened bulkhead was already leaking water even before the collision also the rivets used to seal together each sheet of metal in the building of the titanic were not always of great quality the best material apparently to use for rivets is steel but iron had to be used in a number of places because of um, the way that the ship was built and the, the building process the iron used in the rivets was prone to break and at low temperatures the effect was even worse and obviously sailing through the icy waters of the Atlantic the hull of the ship would have been very very cold. When it hit the iceberg many of the rivets holding together the ship actually failed. It was impossible at the time for people to search the sunken wreck. It was so deep down and to find any of this out and of course now when divers go down to the wreckage a lot of it is disintegrated so really those investigations initially had to just go on witness testimonies and and what people had seen so yeah there's i don't feel like there's any conspiracy theories here guys maybe you think i'm wrong but to me this is the crew ignored the ice warnings they couldn't see the ice for themselves soon enough they didn't have those binoculars the ship was going so fast through the ice i don't know enough about whether or not they should have turned off the engines or not but they weren't able to turn quick enough the building of the ship and certain design factors the lack of lifeboats and then the lack of knowledge about the evacuation procedures. I think this is just all what contributed towards it. I don't think there's any any blame that can properly be put at anyone's doors because I the shipbuilders and the architects just didn't know at this time what they were putting forward actually didn't work. I, I think that's the key factor to this because I think if this happened today based on what we do know and how engineering and design has moved on so much, I think there'd be corporate manslaughter charges levelled at the shipbuilder and potentially other people involved too. But back then it was this was a state of the art ship. There'd been nothing like it before, and they were boastful of those design safety features because it's easy to kind of um, slaughter this ship because, of course, it sank, but there would have been lots of ships before her 
that didn't sync that actually had worse design features that were never known about because it never it never sank so yeah yeah i think if it if it were now i think i think this is totally worthy of you covering actually because i think yeah in in today's world i think corporate manslaughter charges would have been leveled at, at the the shipbuilder yeah and this is it i think um it's it is a fascinating disaster and we have covered other disasters where things have potentially gone wrong but i I do even think, yeah, to this day, we'd have, we'd still have that back and forth of this person is at fault. And then that person's supporters would be saying, no, they're not. And I think we would still have a lot of the, the unknowns still, even knowing what we know today. I reckon, I feel like we can get away with, with this, this type of episode once a season. Yeah. <laughs> once in a while. Not too we'll often, We'll see what season 10 brings. Yeah. <laughs> Choose another film to discuss. We'll talk about Die Hard. It's my favourite film. We'll talk about whether or not you can actually do half the stuff in that film. Um, yeah, no, that sounds that is good. Not based on real, not based on real events. I promise. <laughs> well, there we go, guys. Please do let us know your thoughts. Please do come and chat about your theories. Obviously, there's so much more that we could go into that we can't fit it all into one episode. And there's so many other conspiracy theories as well. So, come and have a chat with us. Tell us what your thoughts are. Um, and also, is this, I feel like I can't be the only person who's absolutely obsessed with the sinking of the Titanic. I've got, I'll, sh- I'll put a picture up actually, I've got a reprint of the newspaper from the day after, which is quite cool. Like a, yeah, so I'll put a picture up of that. I don't think you're alone. I think lots of our listeners will be fascinated by this already. So yeah, as Bethan says, let us know what you think. Uh, Don't forget you can find us on Instagram, Facebook. And if you're able to support us and you want to support us on Patreon, there is so much on offer over there. All you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash scenerebpodcast and we can talk about it all on there too. So thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you for joining me, Mark, and allowing me my going rogue moment. You have indulged me. I have. Uh, Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back next week for something a bit more in the vein of seeing red. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we'll be back with it. So we'll see you then. Bye. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.